It's Wednesday, February 11th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today, Mr. Morgan Housel. Thanks for being here, man. It's the least I could do. <laughs> it is the least you could do, because we were talking yesterday, and I said, pick a day. Just just Wednesday or Thursday, just pick a day. That's true. That's how we ended up here. <laughs> That's how we got to here. Um, so, even though there is earnings going on, we're going to skip some earnings news. We're going to step back from that. But you know what? That's why we have the Motley Fool Money radio show. Because if you're really fired up about Pepsi's latest quarter and their results, which, by the way, were, were in some ways pretty strong, we're probably going to hit that on the radio show this week. So, let's, let's start with something that you had tweeted out. And by the way, if you're on the Twitter, you really should be following Morgan, because uh, Morgan is not someone who tweets prodigiously. He's not a volume tweeter, but what he tweets is uh, noteworthy and interesting and is one of those uh, things that it's it's always going to be either interesting or it's going to make you a little smarter. But something you tweeted yesterday um, uh, in some ways flies in the face of what we talked about on yesterday's Market Foolery, because we were talking about the latest results from CVS Health. And it was a year ago CVS announced, we are dropping tobacco products. Yep. And on that day, the stock fell, and there were legitimate questions about what it was going to do. And now, a year later, the stock's up 45%, and they've transitioned, and they've rebranded their company, CVS Health. And it appears, while retail sales in the front of the store have dropped, as I think anyone looking at the numbers would expect, overall, this has really worked out well for CVS. Yeah. And again, it sort of flies in the face of something, a chart that you had tweeted yesterday about the long-term performance of industries in the United States. And this is covering a 110-year period, 1900 to 2010. And uh, I, I realize we're, this is an audio podcast and we're going to talk about a chart. So, uh, I apologize to our listeners for this. But this is a chart covering telecom, food, railways, commodities like steel, textiles, mining, shipping, coal, etc., and number one with a bullet in terms of performance, and it's not even close, is tobacco. It's not even remotely close. So, one dollar invested in the tobacco industry, tobacco industry stocks in 1900, was worth. Actually, let, let, let me back up here. I'm going to flip this order to make it more shocking. One dollar invested in 1900 in most industries, about the average industry, was worth about $38,000 by 2010. Just fantastic. One dollar to thirty-eight thousand. Granted, most people don't invest for one hundred and ten years, but still, that just shows the power of American business over time. Although, if you want to get creative and just set up a will and say, "I'm setting aside a few stocks," or just for your great great grandchildren, or yeah, shares of an S and P five hundred index fund or spiders or whatever, and I want this to be divided equally amongst my future great grandchildren. That was the twentieth century. One dollar into thirty-eight thousand. In the cigarette industry, the tobacco industry, one dollar invested into tobacco stocks in 1900 was worth 6.3 million dollars by 2010. So the average in- industry was one dollar to 38,000. Tobacco was one dollar to 6.3 million. It's in a complete league of its own. No one is even remotely close by about a factor of 10. So, and we talked about this yesterday. Smoking in the United States in terms of just consumption, 
peaked in the Kennedy administration. Right. <laughs> you a gotta, long time ago. You've got to go back 50 years to see the peak, and it has been on a steady decline since then. It's been on a huge decline. Smoking rates have been cut in half, as a percentage of the adult population, have been cut in half over the last 50 years. So, as investors, how are we to separate the trends from the performance of the stock's ostensibly affected by those trends because you to you know to the point you just made you didn't have to go very far past the Kennedy administration to realize that smoking was on the decline it was falling very quickly i think it was 1962 i believe that's right that the surgeon general came out and said smoking is bad it's it, it sounds crazy that we didn't that that wasn't an established fact until 62 but it's true that was that was when it really came out that look this is not good and smoking rates plunged quickly, and they've been on consistent decline for the last fifty some odd years. But if you, if it's you know 1980, and you see nearly two decades worth of smoking decline, and you think, gosh, this is this is not a good long term trend for the tobacco industry. Therefore, I'm going to sell all my tobacco stocks. You're missing out on huge gains. So, how, like, here's what's really crazy: from 1960. To 2013, uh, during that period, that really long period, the single best stock to own during that period was Altria, which used to be Philip Morris. It was up 660,000 percent during that period, and that's using a starting point at basically the peak of smoking rates. So during that entire period when smoking rates were plunging, Altria was the single best stock to own by far. And you know, I really think there are two stories going on here with why tobacco has been such a phenomenal industry to invest in. One is that uh, the way that cigarettes are made today is extremely similar to how they were made 100 years ago. There's very little innovation in the industry. Uh, it's, you're making the same product today that you were 10, 20, 100 years ago. And that's that's good from a business standpoint because innovation is expensive and you fail at it a lot. So if you compare uh, a cigarette company like Altria to a company like Apple, what Apple's doing is obviously so much more exciting and better for society. We'll get to that in a second. But what Apple has to do is basically reinvent itself as a company every year or every two or three years. And that costs a lot of money and eventually that innovation catches up with companies and they, they stumble compared to their past performance. So Apple has knocked it out of the park with the iPhone. But basically, every five or ten years, it's going to need to come up with a new innovation just as good to keep itself going, to, to make Apple relevant for the next 20, 50 years. It needs to come up with five more iPhone-like ideas. That's very difficult for most companies to do. Whereas a company like Altria, it's the same product over and over and over again. It can just use all that money that it's saving by not innovating, and just the fact, the matter that it's compounding those returns over such a long period because it can stay alive for that long a period without having stumbling to needing to innovate. Those returns just compound on itself over and over again. This is also true for companies like Colgate Toothpaste or Procter and Gamble, uh, you know, soap companies, food companies like General Mills. Companies that don't innovate very much, don't need to innovate, tend to have tremendous long-term returns. It's kind of a counterintuitive point. Is the tobacco industry are the stocks. I have to believe that, to some degree, they are helped by the fact that, for at least thirty years now, there have been 
not just individual investors, but institutions who have said, I don't want any part of this. I don't. These are, you know, quote unquote, sin stocks. I don't want to be. And because of that, the laws of supply and demand take over, and so there's less demand for the stock. That's that. That's exactly true. That's the second part of the story here. Is that for very good reasons? There's a lot of ethical concerns about owning these companies. A lot of people don't want to own them at all at any price. I will never own Altria stock. There are a lot of investors that think that way. Um, and because of that, tobacco stocks tend to trade at very low valuations because there's less demand for the stock. When a stock trades at a lower valuation, it has a higher dividend yield. When it has a higher dividend yield compounded over 50 years, you get magic, basically. It just compounds on itself, and the returns over time just become extraordinary. So that, the, those are really the two explanations for why tobacco is in a league of its own. It doesn't need to innovate, which is great over time. Uh, and investors don't like these stocks, which gives them high dividend yields, which turns them into compounding machines. I, I think another lesson for another takeaway for investors is that you can have a long-term trend, and you can have stocks that are going against that long-term trend that perform very well over sustained periods of time. And we've seen, just to take it out of tobacco and more to general health, we've seen the rise of organics in the grocery industry and uh, you know companies like whole foods uh, etc doing well off of that we've also seen certainly over the last 5 to 10 years an explosion of hamburger businesses in America and ironically certainly over the last year the biggest one is doing the worst McDonald's uh, right. stock is doing terribly Wendy's stock has done quite you know it's Yes, so yes, we have the long-term trend of move towards organics and and better health and and better ingredients, that kind of thing. But people love a big old juicy, greasy burger too. That's right. Yeah, and you have. I mean, it's it's neat too to see uh, what I guess is innovation within a company or within an industry like hamburgers that you would think is is past the point of innovating. But you see companies like Shake Shack and whatnot that are really. Making ground on bigger names like McDonald's is pretty cool. Have you been to a Shake Shack? I haven't. No, I need to. Though I almost went to one the other day. I was I was in D.C. and uh, I I was tempted, but they have food trucks in D.C. They don't really have food trucks here in Alexandria, so I opted for the food truck route. Have you ever been to In and Out? I have not. The West Coast, despite the encouragement. Um, uh, from a number of listeners who have said, you got to go to In-N-Out. It's good. I'm going to get there sometime. It's good. Uh, let's go to something else uh, from Twitter. And we rarely, if ever, talk about commodities on this podcast. And that's uh, there are a number of reasons for that. I think the main reason- We're about to see the main reason. <laughs> the main reason, well, yeah, we're about to see them. Uh, the main reason is we're about Stocks here at the Motley Fool, and so I'm sure there's you know several podcasts out there for commodities, and and uh, and so you have that option if you're interested. Um, boy, this in one single chart, and I'll I'll tweet this out in, in the Market Foolery feed uh, from Ben Carlson, and it's a chart tracking performance of commodities, stocks, and cash from the time period of 1980 to 2014. And this sentence says it all. Commodities have returned less than cash since 1980, with more volatility than stocks. That's right. Let me repeat that, because it (laughs) bears repeating. Commodities have returned less than cash since 1980, with more volatility 
than stocks. And that's in real terms. So that's after inflation is factored in. Were you surprised when you saw this? Yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I think I was. The less than cash part surprised me. Right, you know, for most of it's a lot of people don't think about it now because for the last ten years, cash has returned usually zero percent. But for a lot of most of history, on a money market count or a CD at the bank, you could earn five, six, seven percent on your cash. So cash didn't return. You know, cash had a decent return for a lot of history, and that's why. Uh, you know, so cash had a real return. You could earn a return higher than the rate of inflation. Whereas commodities, over time, if you're lucky, the goal is that they're going to keep up with inflation, but nothing more. You're not going to get a real return out of it. It's just going to keep up with inflation. But then you have huge volatility in there, in between. So you know, you take about something like gold. The goal, I think, with gold, from for investors who own it, is to protect themselves against inflation. So they want gold to keep up with inflation. So that's all it's going to do for you is if you're lucky, it's going to give you no real return. But in the meantime, it's going to go up 50%, down 50%, you know, up 400%, and then down 70%. You have huge volatility for what the end goal is to earn nothing. <laughs> so, again, just because I don't know if you run into this, every once in a while I run into this, if you know, you're at a barbecue or just out and you end up talking about work or whatever and the stock market comes up and every once in a while I'll run into someone in in a in the course of conversation I'll be like oh well I wouldn't invest in stocks they're they're, they're way too volatile and it's just and it's like well that's the cost of emission <laughs> though that you have to pay to earn the great returns that stocks yield over time you know there there's no there there the, the reason you can earn better returns in stocks than you can in cash or bonds there's a reason for that it's not just someone being nice to you and saying hey do you want to you want great returns just own this over here there's a cost you have to pay and the cost that you pay for earning those higher returns is higher volatility and yet still lower volatility than you find with commodities that's right <laughs> over the weekend you were someplace much warmer. You were down in Orlando for the Money Show. And for those not familiar, the Money Show is an event that is put on in several cities uh, around the world. And the largest, is it the largest in the world or the largest in North America? Because they do this in Las Vegas. They do it in, I think, San Francisco. There have been times when they've done it in Washington, D.C. And when I say they, I'm referring to the organizers, the parent company that runs the Money Show. But it's essentially a the one in Orlando is is certainly the biggest one in North America in terms of the number of attendees, and it's I think big, yeah. I mean it's I, I want to say it's like eighty to a hundred thousand people. It's it's a lot um, <laughs> over, over uh, close to a week, and uh, if you get the chance uh, and you're an investor, it's uh, I believe it's free for investors. The, yep. the the business model is the companies that are exhibiting are paying that. So they can exhibit their services and their and their products to the investors. But it's interesting. I've I've been to a couple, um, and you can uh, see the depth and breadth of financial services. Um, in ter- and just you know, as we just talked about, certainly commodities. There there are people. Oh yeah, people love that pitching their commodity newsletter or anything like that. But you were the closing keynote speaker. First of all, congratulations. That's um, that's, a, that's a pretty sweet honor, considering the, the size of the event. Yeah, it was fun. It was, it was fun to do. What um, what did you talk about? Well, let's start with that. What, what did you talk about in your speech? Okay, so from 1990 to 2010, uh, the S&P 500 returned about 8% per year, which is great. Over a 20-year period, you can increase your money fourfold with those returns. It's great. The average investor 
who was investing in U.S. stocks during that period earned about 4%. So, you have the stock market returns 8%, and the average stock market investor earns 4% during that period. And inflation during that period was about 3%. So, the average stock market investor during this 20-year period barely kept up with inflation. So, my speech was pointing that stat out, which I think is the single most important stat in investing, and then going through why investors earn half of the rate of market returns. And it's not fees, it's not bad stock picking, it is overwhelmingly just bad investing behavior of people buy when the stock market is booming and then they sell after it's crashed. It's the exact opposite kind of behavior that you would want, but it's the behavior you see investors fall for time and time again. And over long periods of time, we're not talking six months or a year, but over a 20-year period, the average investor just does terribly. Did anything at the event, because I know you were there for a couple of days, did anything at the event surprise you, uh, whether it was some other speech that you happened to listen to or just an encounter with investors? I have to believe that there were people coming up and talking to you, certainly after your talk. Uh, I spent most of the event by the pool, Chris. (laughs) We we are in D.C. where it's about 20 degrees. This was in Orlando where it was 75, and I took advantage of that. Thank you very much. But no, I think something that really surprises me, this kind of goes to what we were just talking about, are the number of older investors who are in, let's say, age 65 and up, who are absolutely terrified of inflation. And I'm not saying their fears are misguided or wrong. But it is a much greater fear than you will see in younger investors. And I th- my hypothesis for this is that people who lived, whose working years, their adult years, were spent in the inflationary period of the 1970s, that stuck with them more than it did if you were younger and if you were a child or not born yet in the 1970s. You think much differently about inflation than someone who is in their 70s or 80s today. Kind of the same theory as you know, those who lived through the Great Depression were just terrified of debt for the rest of their lives. And I think we see that. So when you go to these events like The Money Show, where you can really interact with a lot of investors, you really see that among older investors, uh, one of their top concerns is inflation and how do I protect myself against it. Whereas younger investors almost think of it as a complete side issue, if not kind of a joke, because they haven't really experienced it. Well, and along those lines, uh, our colleague, Diana Yoakum, who's the personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool, she and I were talking recently about millennials and uh, recent survey data that has come out about millennials being good with money. And part of that uh, is fueled by millennials very vividly Remembering the Great Recession, right? That's that was their first experience to the real world of finances. Was, hey, the stock market falls fifty percent. Twenty percent of young people were employed at the time. Welcome to the real world. I, I should use this as an opportunity to mention Diana. You can hear Diana and our colleague Robert Brokamp, who's our retirement expert here at the Motley Fool, every week on Motley Fool Answers, which is the newest podcast. New episodes go up on Tuesday on iTunes, on Stitcher, a whole bunch of different platforms. So, check it out. The uh, The latest episode, just in time for Valentine's Day, is Couples in Cash. They're to, funny, too. They are funny. Yes, Allison Southwick hosts them, and uh, it's it's really funny. Um, any, any Valentine's Day plans? I mentioned on the radio show last week, 
according to the National Retail Foundation, the average person is going to spend $142 on Valentine's Day this year, which is about 6% higher than last year. First, I'm not asking you to disclose what you're doing for your lovely bride, but $142, right on target, higher or lower than less than what you were going to spend? My wife and I, <laughs> we have a great marriage. We do not get each other gifts for anything. Christmas, birthday. anything? No, Christmas, birthdays. Wait a minute. We called it. We called a truce a couple years ago. We go on great vacations together. We do nice things for each other. But a present wrapped up and delivered it just doesn't happen in our household. Was that? Does a, that make me a bad person? That doesn't make you a bad person. But I'm fascinated by this. <laughs> Was there a specific conversation where the two of you decide? This sounds like. We're deciding that we're making an official declaration. This this doesn't sound like something that you just sort of ease into over time. This sounds like, hey, there, I have an idea. Okay, what if were, we never buy each other another present? There were there was once, a long time ago. We were still in in college, still just dating at the time, and I surprised her for her birthday with a trip to Hawaii one year. Wow! And it was great. It was hey, surprise! A flight leaves in five hours, kind of thing. It was awesome, and that was like a week before her birthday. And as we we were going out there, I said, "Hey, just to set your expectations straight, this is your birthday present. Don't not don't expect anything else. <laughs> this is this is it." And I think it just kind of went from there of like physical gifts. We'd rather do something fun together. That's nice. Another story that is nice. Another story though. For years during Christmas time, my, me and my siblings would always exchange basically the same present. We didn't put a lot of thought into our gifts. So on Christmas Day, my brother would give me a $100 Amazon gift card, and I would give him a $100 Amazon gift card. <laughs> and then finally one year, we just went, can we stop doing this? Can we just call it? Just, can we just bring a bottle of wine to over for Christmas, and let's just, let's just enjoy ourselves? Is it a $100 bottle of wine? No, no we don't do that either. <laughs> You got to follow Morgan Housel on Twitter. But to get stories like that, you got to wait for him to be on Market Foolery. <laughs> Thanks for being here, man. Thanks. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hell. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.